Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, um, <clears throat> this is the week before teaching begins, so I'm trying to hop around and get a lot of things done. And I'll try to do the Parsha po- podcast today. This week is Re'e, the Shabbos, of course, is going to be Rosh Chodesh Elul, no less. But let me see if I can confine my observations, a few observations to the Parsha, where Moshe says, uh, which the major theme in this Parsha, it seems to me, is this stark quality. Think of what he just said. Is a bracha and a klala, a blessing and a curse. There's no in-between, right? Uh, most of us don't want to live a life of bracha and klala. We want to live a life of in-between, you know? Just want to chill a little bit. When I go to shul, when I learn, I'll do a bracha. When I do, I'll do a klala. But Moshe says that everything is bracha and klala. You know, uh, a bracha she tishmun, a klala she lo tishmun. We all know that. Now, uh, which means that uh, Moshe must be saying this for a reason. And is this interesting to me that if you survey the Parsha, uh, especially with a good translation, then you see uh, two big uh, themes that present themselves, and one is uh, syncretism and the other is false prophets, which is kind of interesting. A syncretism means a combination of religions. So in our context, syncretism, a syncretic approach would be yeah, you have Judaism. You also have a little idols, too. Why not? As a matter of fact, uh, I remember Ari Kaplan translates like this. You have that in this week's Parsha, don't you? That people, when you get to Israel, Moshe says, and Moshe won't be alive anymore. So you'll say, yeah, I believe in the God who took us out of Egypt, and I made a Mishkan, and we keep Shabbos, all the rest of it. But but I want to do some of the uh, uh, local practices as well. Uh, you know, what's wrong with singing uh, Christmas carols? You know, something like that. I, I do all the other mitzvahs correctly. I bet you there are people like that. Um, so that's a different thing than saying you're going to abandon the Jewish religion and go for other gods. That's a much starker choice. That's a bracha klala choice. Uh, there are always mumrim, as we call them, who give up Yiddishkeit in the one hand and embrace a completely different belief system. And that certainly happened to the Jews. But on the other hand, it didn't. And I'll tell you what I mean when I say it. I'm not trying to be confusing. Moshe is saying, in this week's parsha anyway, don't mix the Quran like Kilayim. Don't make together uh, Jewish practices with pagan practices. Because they, you'll end up uh, keeping Shabbos and sacrificing your kid on Sunday. It doesn't he say words like that if he call a toev lawsu. Uh, I think that's how the pasuk goes, which means that you get involved in that, and you end up uh, with quote unquote the best of intentions, uh, you know, offering human sacrifices because you say I'm going to do it too. In other words, it's 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 an azhara, it's a warning, not to adopt 
pagan practices and incorporate them within Judaism. Um, which, for all I know, maybe we have some Geisha stuff that doesn't come over the years incorporated with Judaism. Very base. Uh, but that Moshe is giving his best shot. So it's very interesting. In previous parts of the speech, he's always warning him, don't abandon the mitzvahs, uh, don't go after other gods. That's what we said in last week's parsha. Uh, you know, don't don't forget what you saw at Sinai and uh, Mitzrayim, and, and on and on. This is the the sort of rambling speech of Moshe over and over again. And uh, don't uh, you know say that their gods have something because they really don't, and so forth. Now he's probably looking at the crowd and realizing the real danger is not they're going to drop uh, drop Judaism. But they're going to miss the Haran, they're going to combine Judaism with other beliefs, even though it would seem to be, uh, you know, tard de sasri, but impossible. But we have it today, or let's put it this way, that's the Jews for Jesus. That's exactly what it is, right? The argument is, you can combine Judaism together with Christianity. That's exactly what they're talking about. Now, I know, to you, if you're listening to this, you're not going to be into that. But you hear the Vart, meaning, throughout history, and particularly the biblical history, it doesn't seem, now listen close to what I'm about to say, if you read through the Tanakh, it does not seem that the Jews, when they settled in Israel, Mamish dropped Judaism 100% and completely converted to other to worship of other gods. On the contrary, it seems that what they did is exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu is warning about in this week's Parsha, which is they kept up Judaism and they also kept up other gods as well. Uh, the famous story of the golden calf has to go like that. We all know, or I expect you know, that when Shlomo Melch dies, the kingdom splits into two. You have a kingdom of the south, the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of Israel. And the two kingdoms uh, live a, 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 an existence, in other words, as two kingdoms. After the death of Shlomo, the Jewish people never reunite into one kingdom. That's a sad statement, but it's a fact. The Jewish people never were under one combined government or country, except for the very short period of Shaul, David, and Shlomo. But afterwards, they split into two. And they often fought each other, and sometimes killed each other by the hundreds of thousands. But that's that. Now, what happened to the kingdom of the north? Well, it was set up by Yeroam ben Nevat. And what did he do? He not only organized the ten tribes or whatever it is into their own kingdom and not part of the Malchus based of it, his own kingdom, but he also set up two golden calves, one in Dun and one in Basel. And these two calves became the religious symbols, the, the gods of the kingdom of the north for the next couple of hundred years. Every single one of the kings of the north uh, worshipped the golden calves. Now, uh, this is obvious. I'm sure I've mentioned it before. If you don't know that, you don't know anything about Tanakh, which is fine, but I'm just saying that's like a basic. Now, hold on for a second. Every one of these kings worshipped the golden calf. Some of those kings of the north went beyond that. Not only did they worship the golden calf, they also did Baal, Sharon, and all that kind of other junk. Fine, let it be. Now, and it's 21 kings in the north. Now, we're talking a couple hundred years over the course of a long time. Does that mean that when Yeram ben Nevat started to be king, right after the death of David and Shlomo, everybody immediately flipped and completely dropped Judaism, the belief in Ten Commandments, the belief in one God, the the experience of Maimon Sinai and the Tzitzit Mitzrayim and all the rest of it, uh, 
as well as the Tariag Mises, they just completely drop those and, and switch to another religion called the Golden Calf? No. I don't think anybody learns like that. Altogether, it's still hard to understand how it happened. But nevertheless, it's clearly that what Yeram ben and others like him did was they said, you keep on practicing the way we've been practicing, but we switch a few. For example, if we are setting up another kingdom, get rid of the Shalash Regalim as it used to be performed, and we'll perform it a different way. He actually did that. And this notion that you can't have any other god in the sense of any other idol, uh, we're going to modify that. I don't believe that they worship literally the golden calf in the sense that they thought the calf had a, a power, but it was a symbol. There are many Mepharshim learned again. It was a symbol of a certain aspect of the Rabboni Shalolo. Let it be like that. Uh, which means that they kept up Judaism with a pagan component. Now, you ask me a question. How can somebody... Uh, claim to be a from Jew if they have an idol. If I was a real from me, I was like, do you have a TV in your house? You claim to be a from Jew. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's not true. A person can be a from Jew and have some shtick on the side. It's, that's, that's the reality of it. And this is precisely what Moshe Rabbein is warning about because next thing you know, the TV will take over, so to speak. The idol will take over. And over the course of time, it may indeed happen that all Judaism will be snuffed out and you'll be totally pagan. And even if you're not, the kind of syncretistic religion in which is 50%, monotheism, 50%, this other stuff will be itself a hybrid bastardized uh, combination, which will be something God does not want. Um, so understand this well. Even if you set up a golden calf as a, as a symbol or something like that, you're still chayim misa. So, I, you know, this, this is what Moshe Ben is sort of like trying to get across over here. And, and he's warning against it. Uh, uh, repeatedly in this parsha, even if a prophet comes and tells you to do, he says, "Ki novi yocholim chalom mofes." You know, and he said, "Nelchovenavdelhimachirim." You could have a person who could do magic, who could do wonders, and he'll say, "Worship others." Does that mean the guy saying completely drop Judaism and completely embrace another religion? No, add Judaism together with another religion. That's how good, and you and you and you like the combination. Now, I want to tell you something funny, funny or tragic. Moshe Rabbeinu makes this speech as his dying declaration. Parshas Rei is part of Devarim. This is, speech is given, I don't know, a week or two or three or four, whatever, for his death. And then he dies. And then a couple years go by. Not many. Uh, if you go by Chazal, 14 years or so. And then we're beginning what we call the period of the Shoftim. And what happens then? Uh, we have the story of Pesel Micha, meaning... If you read the next book, the book of Judges, so there's Yeshua and then there's Shoftim. This is all taking place after the death of Moshe. And again, I'm going by the way the Chazal described the chronology in the uh, Seder Olam. So Moshe dies. Give it a few years for Yeshua to wage some wars and take over part, I repeat, part of Israel. But that's all. Then Yeshua dies. And then occurs two events. The Pelagos will be given to Pesel Micha. And the, what is the Pesel Micha? Look it up. It's a weird story where the, a, a bunch of Jews, I'm not going to go through the whole story, it's, a bunch of, it's at the end of the book of Shoftim. A bunch of Jews get together, first a mother and a son, and then some others, and they make an idol. According to tradition, it was actually a golden calf. And this idol, they set up as a church, meaning a place to worship. You bring carbonus to it and things like that, incense, whatever you bring is worship. And... It's a weird story. It starts out in the hill country of Ephraim and ends up in up north in Tel Dun. Let it be. 
and it remains there for hundreds of years. Meaning, if you go by the Gemara anyway, there's different opinions, but you go by the Gemara, this church lasted at Yom Galos Haaretz until the Jews left Israel, which is five, six hundred years later. Uh, which is a weird story. So that means that there were these Jews. In this case, it was located in Shevet Don. It's up north, you know, when you go to Tel Don these days. That's where the idol used to be. And um, the Jewish people, or at least people there, whatever, uh, worshipped there. Now, what does that what, what, Let's get down and dirty. What does that mean? People brought karbanas. They went there for brachas. I don't know. Things like that. Um, for hundreds of years. And the question then becomes, uh, why? Uh, let's put it this way. Maybe at the time of Shoftim, such a thing could happen because it was a time of Hefkeris, of anarchy. As it says at the end of the story, Pelagish Begiva, by Yami Mohem, Ein Melch Be Yisrael, Ish Kechola Yasha Ben Yasen. There was nobody, no king or nothing, everybody do whatever they want. So a couple of damn fools could get together and say, let's make a little idol over here and use it as a religious ceremony place, like a Shtickle Mishkan or whatever. And uh, this will be a place we worship. And it could be smack in Israel. And you can understand, like, such thing could happen because nobody was in charge. But if you tell me, the classic Mepharshim ask, that this church remained for five, six hundred years, how come when there were kings of Israel, like David Amel or Shaul or Shlomo or somebody like that, why didn't they immediately get rid of it? Once there was somebody in charge. Let's put it this way. Shaul became a king, I don't know how much later, a couple of years later. Uh, Shaul was a from guy, very from guy. He had his issues, but he was a very from guy. David, I don't even have to tell you. So between them, they ruled at least 50 years. So uh, how come they didn't get rid of it? You know, here comes Shaul becomes king or David becomes king. He said, listen here, now that I'm in charge, we're getting rid of this idol. Otherwise, it's crazy. You had a, 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 a base of a Zorah. Smack in the middle of Jewish territory? It's like, uh, I always say, it's, it's like putting up, uh, you know, uh, a church uh, or Yeshiva Lane or something like that. You know, like, what, Jews doing it. Like, what, what, what's going on over here in the middle of Meisharm? You know, well, uh, what happened? This question is a classic question of the Parshanut, of all the uh, Mepharshim. And when I'm in high school, I always give this as a question to students. And there's a wonderful discussion of it uh, in, Menashe, in one of my favorite cheater books uh, called The Conciliator from Menashe ben Israel, who was a famous Dutch rabbi in the 17th century and who assembled all these Mepharshim in Spanish for the congregants he had at that time who were Moranos escaping from Spain and Portugal. He wrote a book in, in, in Spanish called El Conciliador, The Conciliator, and uh, basically deals with all the classic questions such as I just raised and gives you all the answers. And... Uh, there are different ways of approaching how to answer that question. Uh, some is the derchab shot ways, in which you say that even though it says the the data the, the land was exiled, it doesn't really mean five hundred years later. It really means something happened a few years later, five years down, ten years later. In which case, it obviates the question because the church, if you follow that mahalach, then the church was gone long before David ever showed up on the scene or show. But if you go with the regular chazal, and the place was around for hundreds and hundreds of years. So then, how do you explain, let's say, for example, that Dovin Amal didn't get rid of it? You have a church. And there's a shot by the greatest of the commentators on the Medrash. 
Uh, you have no idea who I'm talking about. Who is the greatest Pirish on the Medeshavah? There are many, but uh, the greatest without question. And the answer is the Efetor, Shmuel Yafi Ashkenazi, who was a big uh, rabbi in Turkey in the 1500s, uh, 16th century. And he was a rabbi in the Talmud Chacham and all that, and he was in the Shalos and Shivas, but uh, he was a, uh, I guess you'd call him today like a Magad or a Darshan. He would go and speak in Shuls and Shabbos and that sort of thing and command a big following. And if you have the job of giving a speech on the uh, Agadatah, uh, as used to be the case, you know, every week, so you, you either uh, will be mediocre or you'll get good. And he got very, very good. It was a big time of also. And he ended up not only dealing, as I do, you know, with a piece of medish here, a piece of medish there, but he wrote a commentary in the Guns of Medishaba, which is a huge undertaking. Uh, unfortunately, not all of it has been published. Um, not on Bamidbar and Dvarim, but on Bresha Shemot and Bayikra and on the uh, Five Megillas, I believe. It's called Yefei Toar. There's a tiny fragment of it in the regular Mafarshim, like you get the Art Scroll, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the Medishaba, the Vilna, Gon, the Vilna uh, edition of Medishaba. You know what I'm talking about? The one the Art Scroll puts out, it's the Golden Oldie with the Marzav on the side and Rashi and all that sort of thing. There's a little bit of Yefei Toar, but that's nothing near the real Bakoy. I don't know why, for some reason, this this period has never really been published. It's like one, you know, edition from the 15th, 1600s, he and his uh, children or grandchildren published way back when, is a chicken scratch reading, it's a bummer. You can look at it in the Hebrew books if you want, but you're not going to have the patience to read through it. But he's excellent. He's unbelievable, right? He's got, he goes through every medrash, and he's very solid, and he's a, a great goon, and he's a smart guy too. And uh, therefore, we're dealing with a great man over here. Now, I gave you this whole preface for the following reason. How does he explain this chazal that I just said, that the church that was built by Micha, uh, for, which was an idol, uh, an image, and uh, served as a religious center, right smack in the middle of Israel until done, lasted for so many centuries without anybody interfering with it. And I remember myself singing in in, um, in Menashe Ben Israel is the one to call my attention to it. And he says an unbelievable vart, in my opinion. And he says the following. Uh, what happened over here? Uh, this is at the beginning, not long after the speech of Moshe, after the death of Joshua. And these people, if you read the story in, in, in uh, Shoftim, clearly were not exactly heavy hitters up in, 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 in their intellectuality. I'm talking about the people who made this idol. And they were Jewish. And uh, 100%. As a matter of fact, the people from Don who sort of kidnapped the idol, they go and wipe out some Geisha territory and, and, and settle it and read the story. So they're Jewish-Jewish. But clearly, it didn't. they didn't read Parshish through A, shall I say. In other words, they didn't accept or it didn't sink in what Moshe said, which is, don't say... Uh, that the way to go have a gods, that's why I'm going to do the same mode. And what they ended up doing was setting up this idol, which obviously satisfied some religious needs. Maybe they need a physical object. I don't know. I remember some Gemara in Sanhedrin I did long ago for art school. I think he said that the idol was dedicated to Chesed, in which case it's like the Catholic, St. Bernard or something like that, you know, patron saint 
of chesed or something like that. So basically, what's wrong with that? You know, even if it's an idol, but it's dedicated for good works and inspires people to do mitzvahs, a chesed, blah, blah, blah. So you understand what I'm saying? Not every idol out there is like Kali, the goddess of murderers, you know? Not every idol out there is the goddess of chesed uh, prostitutes or whatever. Some of them are the gods of, uh, you know, uh, good deeds, a charity, uh, kindness, helping others. So it's totally understandable. A person was like this. What's wrong with that? You know, so it's an image, big deal. But I mean, it doesn't inspire bad uh, uh, deeds. But nevertheless, the Torah says, even if you have, I mean, I, I assume you know this, even if you have a God to the highest, uh, even if somebody built an idol, which is dedicated to Torah Lishmo. <laughs> Imagine that, right? You have an idol dedicated to learning 24-7. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Ah, what's wrong with learning 24-7? And learning Lishem uh, Shemaimah, that's the purpose of the idol. It's an idol. Can't do it. Chaimisa. So it's just interesting. They didn't get that. I'm talking. I'm telling you now what the Fate Torah says, not me. They didn't get that, and they became convinced that you can combine this as part of Judaism. Like I said before, it would serve as an intermediary or something like that to bring down divine influence or help us focus. Mamish, imagine if if they if they viewed it. I know this will sound funny to you. Imagine if they viewed it as a, an aid to Torah Lishma, or something like that, you know, every time we look at this idol, come out, come out feeling good, and I sit down, and I learn five blots, so what's wrong with it, you see, and this, according to Yifei Torah, is what happened in the time of the Shoftim, now that shortly, at the beginning of the book, after the death of Moshe, 14, 15 years or so, 16 years after the death of Moshe, and it remained for hundreds and hundreds of years, and people, therefore, in the Tel Dun area, or the Jews in the Galil, where whoever it applied to, Maamish incorporated as part of the Judaism. So what happened? You ended up with a weird situation. You had Jews that have Astrayimel and Kapota and Peyus and all the nine yards, and they go to davening every day, and they keep Shabbos and Kashyos and Mishpacha, and they do Chesed, and they keep their very punctilious on the mitzvahs, and they keep absorbing Moed, Kachin, and Zikim Tyrus, they do all that stuff. But you know something? On Sunday morning or on Tuesday afternoon, they go and work and, and do a carbon to this idol. So that became part of their Judaism. And you know how it goes. If my father did it, my grandfather did it, my great-grandfather did it, that's my Zadie's minhug. And you couldn't get it out of people's head that you're violating the Torah when you do this. You're violating the Torah. You couldn't convince him because my Zadie was a real firm guy. And he was, except he had this idol, Mishagas, on Tuesday afternoon. And my Zadie was Moisir Nefesh, for mitzvahs and Torah, and he fought the Philistines. I don't know, you know, he saved the Mishkan, he did this, that, and the other, and he used to go on Tuesday afternoons and offer a carbon or whatever, uh, you know, to, to, to this idol, uh, or incense or whatever he did. So don't tell me it's not part of Judaism because he was firmer than you. According to Torah, this is what happened. By the time uh, David and Shlomo and Shaul came along, they said, I guess, this is wrong, but I'm not going to tamper with it. Because these people think that this is from Judaism. If I knock down this place, they'll destroy their whole idea of Judaism and they'll become even worse. I'm going to read you the way, let me get the book. I'm going to read you the summary in English, which is really a translation from the Spanish of Menashe in Israel. He wrote the book in the 1600s. Some British guy in London translated into Victorian English in the middle of the 1800s. And it's really an excellent book down till today. Uh, and think about this. 
it says, in Pinker Blazer, I'm quoting now, that this idol was not for strange worship, but the intention was to form a figure under certain constellations that might attract to it higher influence. And in Pinker Blazer, it says, when Micha made the image, he never intended for strange worship, but it might be the means of attracting divine influence, uh, which, as I told you before, means he thought it's a syncretism. But afterwards, as frequently happens, and as occurred with the serpent of Moses and the ephod of Gideon, remember in the Chumash, Hashem tells Moshe Aminu, I say lechasarf, v'simos alneis, v'yakon neshuch, v'rosavachoy. Hashem himself told Moshe Aminu to make a copper snake. That's straight in the Chumash. Can't tell me it's an idol. I'll say it again. Hashem told Moshe, go make a copper snake. But we all know, I assume you know this, that over the course of time, uh, the copper snake became an idol. People worshipped it. That's why they praise who was a chizkia later on for destroying it. So, in that case, it was an idol that was mutter to make in the first place a mitzvah. But nevertheless, it got corrupted. So I'm going back to the text. Afterwards, as frequently happens, and as occurred with the serpent of Moses and the ephod of Gideon, the work became misunderstood, and some of the lower orders, meaning the Hamon Am, adored it, started worshipping it, not comprehending the purport of it. And since it is a difficult thing to eradicate habitual customs, these pious judges and governors, meaning David and Shlomo and those people, must have considered that since it wasn't positively intentional idolatry, if they recognized it as such, it would be placing a greater stumbling block to those who would not abandon their old habits, and therefore mutavi shogun the alide valyumazidin. That's unbelievable. That's from your Fetor. That's an unbelievable shot. He's saying that, let's say you're David and Melch, you come along, like I told you before. These people think it's part of Yiddishkeit. You can't get in their head. It's not. Uh, I know you're going to jump at me, but I'll I'll give you a, an example. It's, it's not the same thing at all. Obviously, it's totally different. But I'll give you the same thing at all. Think about a Vilna Gaon follower. And they say, look at these Hasidim. Oh, it's a Buddhist Oh, boy. You know, I mean, the Vilna Gaon held that way. You know, people like that held that way. What are you, are you going to go in? No, well, they believe it's too late. You know, you understand we have such things in Judaism. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's a way of talking. See, he says, they have such things in Judaism where to one group, you know, this is just like a Vodazara Mamish, you know? And uh, nevertheless, what are you going to do? People, uh, you know, are habitualized to that. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu is talking about when he says, uh, you know, there's a brachon call and don't, don't miss it together and don't say, Echa Yavda, Goimez, Ho'elas Elohim, Be'ezed, Kain, Gamoni. And the Mamish happened. And I'll tell you the the, the 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 isn't that an interesting shot what the Yefei Torah says, and uh, he even says he goes on to say, since human curiosity is always anxious to learn the future, if they had prohibited that mode, they might seek something more criminal, such as consulting the dead, witchcraft, and similar things, which are totally prohibited. Meaning they used to go to this. He's suggesting the Yefei He's suggesting that they used to go to Chveis the Pesel Micha and say. Who's going to win the Oriole game? Who should I put the, my bet on? You know, which horse is going to come in the race? Something like that. Which girl am I going to marry? And they would tell you. Uh, now, if you're uh, stupid enough to pay money for it, then that's your business. And uh, people would like that. Now, l- think about what I just saying. If I go to somebody, let's say they read tarot cards or something like that, and I say, tell me the future. I go to a gypsy in a seance. I say, tell me the future. I'll pay you 100 bucks. And she tells me a future, and I pay her a hundred bucks. Did I violate one of the tariq mitzvahs? No, I'm just a damn fool, that's all. <laughs> a fool and his money are, are, are soon parted. 
You know, if I'm stupid enough to believe that stuff, I'm stupid to believe that stuff. But there are specific Targum mitzvahs against certain forms of that. Machshefa, uh, uh, what else is it? Ov, Yedoni, Dorit, Shalamesim, all that kind of stuff. There are certain ways that if you go, if you follow those particular types of uh, future tellers, the Imam Shavon at the rise up. So he's, the Fator is suggesting that Moshe Abenu, I mean, um, David Amalek or Shal or one of those people said, these people always want to go there to find the future. You know, basically, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the girl I should marry? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's, uh, you know, uh, which school should I send my kids? I don't know, whatever, if they're, they're dumb enough to fall for that. That's who they're, That's who the public was. If he would say, this is awesome and all the rest of it, they wouldn't stop going to seance and, and, and things like that. They'll start going to real witches, which did exist because, you know, from the story of Shaul and the Witch of Endor, that there really were Machshavis and witches and uh, the, what do you, o, the Balas Ov and all that, necromancers. So you end up seeing the biblical era as one with a lot of confusion. And this lasted all the way down to the Korban Beis Amigdash because you find, again, just off the top of my head, did you have some kings of the north, I don't know, like Yoachaz or others who were tight with the prophets, Elio and Elisha? You did. And they respected them. And they got along well with them. And yet at the same time, they worshiped a golden calf. So how you go explain that? The answer is, it's a syncretism. They believed in Judaism, but they also mixed the Quran to Judaism with some other elements. Now, from a strict point of view, it was totally wrong and also and horrible and all the rest of it. It's exactly what Moshe Avenu was warning about in this week's parsha. I was helpful garnish, but that's what people did. And I'll tell you the uh, saddest or most ironic part of all this. This is Moshe Rabbeinu giving this speech in Parshish Ray. Who was the high priest of this syncretistic worship of the Pesel Micha? You know the answer. The grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu himself. Moshe's grandson. Because it's Yonason ben Gershon ben, ben Moshe. Really, it's written Yonason ben Gershon ben Menashe. But everybody knows the Nun is an, an extra. But it's really Yonason ben Gershon ben... So Moshe Rabbeinu had two sons, uh, Gershon Eliezer, and Gershon a son named uh, Yonason, so that'd be the grandson of Moses, who grew up with Moses, especially if this happened uh, 14 years after the death of Moshe, 15, 20 years after the death of Moshe. And by the time the story's over, this guy is worshiping, or he's, I should say, he's ministering uh, at this uh, shrine. So uh, didn't he listen to what the grandfather said? You know how it goes. First of all, the Chazal say he needed the money. It was strictly a cash and carry business for them. I mean, that's what the Gemara says, not me. The guy needed a Parnassah. They offered him a job over here. You know, as they say, he's indoor working, no heavy lifting. A Jew can't turn that down. And so he, he took it. Uh, but still, it's a big business. The grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu. What does that show you? Moshe makes a whole lot of statements in the speech in Dvarim. That doesn't mean that these played out. I think the warnings, so to conclude, the grand warnings that Moshe issues against dropping Judaism and totally embracing other religions, I don't think we see... I mean, those worked. Those, those, are, those warnings worked, as far as I can tell. You don't look in the Tanakh and see that the Jewish people all adopted the worship of, I don't know, Kamosh and dropped the Judaism, or the worship of Baal and totally dropped Judaism, or worship of these other gods, Ammon, Moab, Edom, whatever. But you do see that these pagan worship systems definitely penetrated, had their impact uh, in Kal Yisrael, uh, devastatingly so at some times. Over the course of time, it might have, I mean, over centuries, it might have totally weakened the Jewish fabric. It's hard for us to tell today. But look how prescient Moshe was when he made these warnings, because that's a, that's a trickier Yetzirah already. 
This Yetzirah says like this, you can keep up being Jewish, you can keep up the Torah and Mitzvahs, keep buying your talis and filling, keep coming to Shachos Mechamarov, and just have an idol here, an idol there, or, or whatever particular practice it was. After all, this is considered respectable in the general religious world. So it turns out, therefore, if you follow this line, the Parshas Rei is actually very acute. You understand? It, it goes, you know, beyond the superficial level and deals with the vagaries of human nature, which human nature often is syncretistic. It's often seeking to combine different elements, even if they're not internally, uh, what's the right word, you know, uh, connected with each other, if they don't stim well, ends up with a tartar But many of us in our lives live a lot of tartar I'm not here to give a mustache moves, but you can figure this out itself, especially if this parsha comes out on Rosh Chodesh. Oh, if you can't figure that one out in your own life, too bad for you. With that, have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com. Rabbi David Katz, dot com.